Let's open up to Acts chapter 11. And while you're doing that, obviously it's a little sparse this morning because we had family camp this weekend. We have a number of families that are away at family camp, along with uh, Pastor James, uh, Emily, our children's ministry director, and all the helpers. So it was a big, wonderful time. And uh, last night, besides all the games and uh, things for the kids, we had Pie the Pastor. It's a variation on whack-a-mole, where uh, Pastor James and myself sat in front of a table and allowed kids and semi-adults to throw pies at us if they spun the wheel and it came up too pie. And so I'm still getting that rancid smell of whipped cream out of my nose, my ears, and my eyes, and it just, it smells bad. So... (laughs) If I give you a hug this morning and you go, oh, man, dude, get some deodorant on you, that's what it is. It's not my breath. It's not anything else. It's just rancid, sour cream. Whipped cream. Sorry. Okay. So Acts 11, 27 through 30 is what we're going to be covering this morning. God, give us a listening ear. So just a quick overview of this chapter that we've been looking I'm sorry, Acts 12, I apologize, Acts 12, is that right? Yeah, Acts 12, 27 through 30. Quick overview of this chapter, Luke Lomas and Eric Maldonado in the past couple of weeks um, described what was going on in this chapter. Herod, King Herod and Luke Lomas gave a real good description of what he was, who he was, where he fit into history, so I'm not going to go through that. If you want, do your own study on that. But Herod, who happened to be the ruling power there at that time, kills James, one of the apostles, and then arrests Peter, intending to kill him, all for political gain and to curry favor. But God, in Peter's case, intervenes and decides through a miraculous intervention through the hand of an angel, sets Peter free from prison while the church is praying with great intercession for him. And so in that process, we read that Peter miraculously is delivered and because Herod can't, the guards can't find him, there's no explanation, Herod kills the guards, which was common punishment in that time. And so within that, we enter into the story. So let's look at the slide in Acts chapter 12, 20 through 22. I knew I'd get it right when I saw it. Wow. Wow. I'm tired. I only got four hours sleep last night, so I apologize. Um, Anyway, let's read this together. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there, and he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. And because they depended on the king's country for their food supply, Again, not misreading that totally. But, so on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a god and not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Tough verse, difficult. 
I get to be the one that expounds on that this morning. <laughs> Tyre and Sidon were a ports of commerce, similar to, you know, in a smaller version, but similar to, let's say, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco. But they were dependent on the Roman authorities for their supply of food, and thus through some political agreement that we're not sure of, had gotten on the bad side of this Roman ruler, Herod. And so wanting to carry the favor of Herod through one of Herod's trusted confidants brokers the political solution, very much like today's political machinations. Then Herod, resplendent in his most glorious clothing, gives this magnificent political speech, and while the roaring of the crowd proclaiming him to be a god is ringing in his ears, God himself intervenes, strikes him, again, through the hand of an angel, showing that the one and only true God utterly humiliates this earthly ruler who is not only opposed to the work of God on earth by killing Peter and James, or trying to kill Peter and killing James, but also dared to put himself in the place of God. It's really quite ironic looking at the fact that in one place an angel sets free Peter from death, but on the other hand brings death all through God's decision or judgment in this case. And so now, even though it has been a great persecution leading up to this chapter and a great loss in losing James, the last passage says here that the word of God continued to increase and flourish. Now, obviously, this brings up a lot of difficult questions, a lot of like, what's that all about? Because Luke doesn't really comment. He doesn't sermonize. He doesn't expound on this. He simply reports what happens and then moves on. And it's like, well, how do you know that, Luke? I mean, what? obviously there's a, the Spirit of God is giving him a revelation of what went on behind the scenes, but it raises for us difficult questions on how that applies in our lives, how it applies in the world, and we're going to go into details on that because I think it's an important topic for us to grow in. But backing up to this story, Sometimes it's important that as we're reading the word, is there any historical or other documents that support the scriptures? Those are always an important thing for us to understand. So I want to bring in this historical backup through uh, a writer called Josephus. Some of you might be aware of this man. And let's look at that slide. Josephus uh, wrote in AD 93-94 a 20-volume historical graphical work uh, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Flavius Domitian. And this was in response to the, this was after, obviously, the Jews had been subdued in the land of Palestine. They had been defeated um, and were basically being wiped out and were really um, considered the scum of society. So uh, Josephus, being a good Jew, wanted to set the record straight and he wrote this 20-volume, starting from Genesis all the way through the Roman Wars, about the history of the Jews and what had happened. And so, in this case, he happens to write about this incident here with Herod. So let's look at the next slide. And in Antiquities, and you can look this up, but I'll give you a reference point if you're interested, Josephus writes this, he, and he's writing about Herod, and he said, he, being Herod, put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a con 
texture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place, one from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. A little later in this particular passage, it says a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed from this life. Now what's important in this historical document is that this was written after Luke's account that he wrote. And so this is a confirmation. This is one way of being able to say that the word of God is true for what it is. It is accurate, it is reliable, and can be trusted. And so that's important as just thinking men and women that we understand that. So I bring that out. But as I said before, it's important and necessary that we look at God's judgment in a more detailed way so that we can understand his heart and his mind better, which allows us to walk in his decisions, his judgments. Admittedly, like I said before, this is a really heavy subject, but I believe this morning as we delve into this, it will allow us to grow up in our understanding of this aspect of God's judgment. So, first of all, I'd like to look at the definition of the term judgment. In the Greek, which also goes into the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, is the word krisis, the Greek word. It literally means a decision or a sentence passed. In other forms in the scripture, it means to declare an opinion or investigate something, or to scrutinize, or to discriminate, or to distinguish. Different shades of the definition to our one word that we use, judgment, as translated in our English version. Now that's important. Another important thing to notice that in the Greek as this was written, that this is a neutral term. When we hear the word judgment, what's the first thought that comes into your mind? Negative or positive? Right. That's important that we make a distinction that that is not accurate. The term judgment, the Greek word, is a neutral term. It is defined by the context around it to determine the meaning of that neutral word. For instance, Jesus says this, judge not lest you be judged. Common thing you, you've heard, right? For with the judgment you need out, it'll be returned back to you. So immediately, in the context of our society, that simply means you don't have a, a, a wrong opinion about someone. You don't voice an opinion. You don't, you don't have a negative feeling towards somebody. In the context of our society, would you say that that's an accurate, that you hear people say, don't judge me? But a few chapters later, Jesus says, I want you to judge the fruit of a person's life. I want you to begin to examine whether or not someone's a false prophet. Doesn't that mean you have to judge, to determine, to investigate, to scrutinize? So what does Jesus mean then when he says that? The context of all the scripture around it simply means this. 
It's not to have bitter condemnation towards someone, to pass a final sentence on that person. And that's an important distinction in, in our discussion this morning. In our discussion, you're not talking to me, I'm talking to you, so let's get, it, let's get that real. In, in sharing this with you, you know, I always hate when preachers do that. Let's talk about, ah, we're not talking about it, I'm talking. <laughs> anyway, don't judge me. <laughs> so you get the idea of what I'm trying to say here and what the scriptures mean? That's very important as we're going through this. Um, the next thing is that it can, be, it can be a decision for or against. Think about that. Think of David asking God in his persecutions when you're reading the Psalms or, or one, of the, one of the accounts of his life where he's asking God to judge for him while he's in the midst of persecution. Peter being released is a judgment for Peter and for the church and against Herod. Right? Herod's is a decision against him. So the term judgment being a neutral word, a judgment can be for something or against something. That's really, really necessary that we understand that. Thirdly, the right to judge has been given to us by God to us for right or wrong. He just doesn't reserve that for himself. He gives it to us. Think about this. In our society, there's a, because of the great reluctance, reluctance to deal in absolutes, the reality is around us is that we have court system, right? Where God has raised up judges to make final decisions or juries to make judgments. Is that accurate or not? Is that right? Okay. All of us make judgments every day on people or situations because it involves ourselves and those we love around us. Now think about that. I'm a grandfather. I'm also a dad. When my daughter started dating guys, do you think I didn't scrutinize, investigate? and form opinions about those guys? You better believe it. I've got the right to do that. And when it started getting serious, I don't know if Cameron and Anna are here, are they? Oh good, I can talk about them, that's good. When Cameron started coming around, my daughter, you can bet I asked him a lot of things. I watched him. I looked how he acted towards her. Is this man worthy enough of my daughter to be her husband? Now, I know I don't have the final say. I got that. That's God and they're adults. But I reserved the right to have a form and opinion, and I certainly did. And thank God, Cameron's a great son-in-law. Love the guy. He's a great son. And so my daughter, my, my, my oldest daughter, uh, Sarah, with Ryan, same thing. Now, are there any dads in here that you don't have the right to do the same? Think of you mothers with your children. Do you ever tell them, don't talk to strangers? Why do you do that? You're making a decision and a judgment that you cannot know people. So you have to be cautious about that. Is that right? 
Think about all the things that you form opinions, you scrutinize, investigate. You make judgments and decisions about things and people every day. So that whole term, don't judge, is a, is a bunch of horse hockey. <laughs> Let's just be honest about that. So Jesus tells the crowd, tells us, well, makes this statement in John 7. He says, stop making superficial judgments but make judgments that are just. So Jesus gives permission to do that. Okay, I hope you're grabbing this. Is this making sense? Good, good, thank you. We are to cry out. We're commanded in the scriptures to cry out for justice for the poor and the oppressed. Is that right? with proper judgment for the helpless, the widows, and the orphans. And we're to advocate for that because that's God's heart. He advocates for that. So we make judgments for the poor, for the oppressed, and against the oppressors and the manipulators and the users. And we're perfectly right to do that because that is what God has given us to do. But it takes self-examination to learn how to form correct judgments as we look at this next text. Let's look at that next slide. The other side about these decisions and sentence passing that we are called to do is that difficulties arise in us not discerning the difference from God's domain and our place in judging. In the area of final condemnation, and whether or not a negative decision over someone is a fixed place for them for the rest of our lives is God's domain. Let's be clear about that. In other words, let's say we're, we're making a negative decision about someone because of the quality of their life. We see it, and we, we avoid that because we don't want that influence on our lives. That does not mean that's going to be their fixed place for the rest of their life. That's not our domain. That's God's. Does that make sense? And so the final condemnation for someone, whether they're doomed to be apart from the Lord or not, that's not our call. That's God's domain. That's really important. Conversely, when we make a decision to do something that seems a positive way to go, we make a judgment, that, yeah, this is what I need to go do, by not leaving that final decision up to God can also overstep that boundary of God's domain. So think about that when you're considering partnering with someone or when you're, you, you see an opportunity and, yeah, that's a decision I need to make. Turn that over to the Lord. Ask him. Ask God to confirm that. That's part of that wisdom of learning how to do that. He really does have good judgments over our lives because he really does know the whole picture. Also, the next thing, that next point there, no, no, go back, sorry. The next point there, it's dangerous and foolish in claiming to know it's God's judgment against people when calamities occur. Now, that's God's domain. Think of Job. How many of you read Job? How many of you are familiar with Job? Okay, if you, if you aren't, I encourage you to read that book because Job was a righteous man. One of God's favorites because he was, loved God and loved people so much. And yet, in the midst of this, disaster happens into his life. God allows disaster into this man's life. 
Now his friends come and they sit with him silently for 10 days, weeping with him. But after 10 days, they start ripping into him, saying that surely there's wickedness in your life. Surely you've done something wrong. You've dishonored God. You've dishonored people. You've robbed the poor. Surely you've done something wrong because God doesn't visit calamities on innocent people. They didn't know. In fact, God corrected them severely for that at the end of Job when you read about it. So the danger is that you and I can become no better than any other Pharisee or religious bigot when we say God's doing this against somebody. Let me say that again. We can become, join in with other religious bigots when we make proclamations on calamities that that's God's judgment against. We don't know. Luke did because he had the revelation of the Spirit. We have scripture that tells us these things, but apart from an investigative place and a place where the Holy Spirit really speaks clearly, just avoid that, really, honestly. You're going to save a lot of trouble for yourself, and it's not a good witness. It doesn't tell the truth about, about the Lord. Let's look at the next slide. Another aspect of, is, is discerning the difference between active, what I call active judgment, intervening actions, and more of a God-stepping-back judgment. The first being an intervening action here, uh, Herod being eaten by worms. Wow, that, that's a terrifying thing. That's a very terrifying thing to think about. But this is God intervening and performing an action. We don't often see this in human history. Think of Nebuchadnezzar uh, during Daniel's time. Nebuchadnezzar was the, the king and the ruler over the entire Babylonian empire. And we read about his story of, of seeing God work and still retaining a hard heart. But then in Daniel's, in the book of Daniel, there's actually a narrative that Nebuchadnezzar writes about his own life. And it talks about how he, he, he was resplendent in his glory and, and a powerful ruler, but God actually came and warned him and said, Nebuchadnezzar, it's crucial that you understand that there is only one God in heaven and that he sets, I set those on the throne whom I want and I remove, remove whom I want. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, okay, yeah, okay, I got it. And then, like, eight months later, he's walking around the Babylonian capital, and he's, he's like, man, these palaces, these gardens, this is marvelous what I've built in my knowledge. And an angel of the Lord speaks through heaven and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're prideful and you're arrogant, and you're going to lose your mind for seven years and eat grass like an animal. And this is exactly, this is his own account, by the way. He writes the fact, after the fact, that for, for seven years he became just like an animal. His nails grew out like bird's claws and hair down here, scraggy. I mean, just terrible. But after seven years, God returned sanity to his mind and God restored him to the leader of, of the Babylonian Empire. And he just praises God as the only God of heaven. So you see, God has a judgment against and for within the same process within this man. And then finally, um, God's people. God can have a judgment for us many, many times. Think of uh, Jacob. Are you familiar with the story of Jacob at all? Okay, the guy was a weasel for a lot of his life. 
you know, just a conniving, lying weasel sometimes. Didn't, didn't offer anything on that run, right? Read it. You might come to the same conclusion. But God still showed favor and judgment for Jacob because his uncle was trying to cheat him out. And so Jacob comes up with this idea of making, because they had this agreement that all the spotted and striped goats were Jacob's and all the black and white, the solid colored, were, were his uncle's, right? And then, so what Jacob does is every time he had, you know, goats coming, he'd put this, you know, striped branches and speckled stuff in the water, and when they'd look at it, they'd, they'd make babies that had stripes and speckles and everything. What? <laughs> God did a miracle for Jacob's sake. He had a decision for Jacob. Now, if you read the rest of the story, it's an amazing story. I'm not going to spend time on that. That's a judgment for. But now think of God's own people in intervening actions where it was against them. Think of the, the people of Israel being dis disciplined by the Lord in judgment by bringing other nations against them and actually throwing them out of the land. Think of them being uh, deposed into Babylon for 70 years because of their, their adultery in their relationship with the Lord. That's a judgment against. How about in the New Testament? Is there anything that might show a decision that God makes within, his, within God's house. Now, this is a hard scripture. I'm going to just warn you about this. This is a tough one. But I want you to, to just grab a hold of it and think about it and, and let, let it sink in a little bit. It's a, tough, it's a tough scripture. Let's go to the next slide. This is out of the book of Corinthians in chapter 11, verses 20 through 22. And Paul is writing correcting a lot of errors within the Corinthian church, within this Corinthian fellowship. And he says, so then, and he's speaking about the Lord's Supper, when you're coming together to eat together and, and take the cup of the Lord. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry, another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you, do, do, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter, he says. Let's go to the next slide. Now, God is deeply involved in how we treat each other. You can hear what Paul is saying. He's speaking by the Spirit of God. And we can see how God is, God is deeply involved in how we treat each other. He fervently desires that we care for each other as he does. Let's go on. So then, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That goes with the following, the, the preceding verse we just read. They were not treating each other in holiness and in true love. So they drank judgment as they would take the Lord's Supper. They drank judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Translation, they died. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. 
Nevertheless, Paul writes this, and this is an important point. We are not, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Now, this isn't punishment is what Paul is saying. That's an important point. This is not punishment. This is correction. It's the Greek word for correction, for discipline. Now you think, well, wait a minute. God is allowing sickness and actually some to die. That seems like punishment to me. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, honestly, I'm just being direct with you. That's how I took that. But in the long view of eternity and the relationship that God has with us for eternity, the temporary is trumped by that in God's eyes. Instead of being condemned with the world, he challenges us and disciplines us in different ways. And in this case, because of that lack of love, holiness, and support among them, and this wanton desire for their own needs, trumping the weak and the helpless, God judged. Now, I'll let that settle a little bit. <laughs> I told you this wasn't an easy message to preach. But it's there. You can't avoid it. And there's other scriptures in the New Testament that speak about that as well. So the difference why it isn't punishment is that the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus, he was punished for our sins. He was the one who was chastised and beaten for the judgment, for condemnation, so that we're not under that. That's why Paul uses that word to correct or discipline. You guys okay with this? It's hard, isn't it? Does it speak to us? In fact, let's just pause for a minute. I'd like to pause and just pray a minute. Lord, your spirit's here. And this is a, this is a hard passage to read. It's a hard concept to grow up into. But Lord, we just want you to examine us. Examine me, Lord. Examine me. Examine each one of us. And please allow your spirit to wash and cleanse attitudes and actions that we might do that would grieve your heart towards each other, Lord. Each one of us, Lord, are as if you are there. And I pray that we would have discernment and love and devotion for you in caring for one another in kind, compassionate ways, and that we would be forgiving and releasing, Lord. So, Lord, we, we don't want to be disciplined in this way, but we want your pleasure, and we need your love to do this. So examine us. And uh, convince us, convict us, Lord, if there be any wicked way like that in us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Okay, let's go to the next slide. We've talked about the actions of an intervening God in active ways. This is another side of God's purposes in, in judgment. It's withdrawing and removing restraint. It's when God steps back and he allows the restraints that he's put to actually be taken away. First, let's look at allowing the freedom of the wicked, the allowing God allowing freedom of wicked human behavior, which is a hard thing, right? But let's look at Romans chapter 1. 
And let's read this. It's Romans 1, and it's selected passages, but I'll just read it and make a comment off of that. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Again, from Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. A little later, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind that they do, so that they do what ought not to be done. Notice how the wrath of God is revealed. When you think of the wrath of God, again, what comes into your mind? Some terrible action like Herod. But notice in this case, Paul is teaching us that God's wrath is revealed by removing restraint over the human heart when we persist in wanting what we want and going our, our own way in other words, becoming a God unto ourselves. God gives up, gives them up to their desires. Wow, that's terrifying. That's a terrifying form of judgment where God actually pulls away the restraint. But that's what Paul is sharing here. And that is one of the reasons why we see rampant wickedness, rampant sinfulness all over. Why do we see the degradation of society? God is actually pulling back and pulling away the restraint. Wow, that's, a, that's terrible. Let's go to the next slide. Another aspect of God's removing and restraint that can sometimes cause us issues because it appears that he doesn't even care and he's not able to do anything about the situation. How many times have you looked at society or looked at calamities or looked at these things. Well, God, where are you? How come you're not doing anything? How come you're allowing my son or my daughter to just go their way? Why would you do that? If you really loved God, why don't you stop wickedness and evil? Common question. Both believer and unbeliever ask that question. So, Let's look at the next slide. Because the scriptures are, are just full of this. And in this case, Job and Asaph out of the Psalms complain against God. Job, in, in chapter 21, as an example, he says, why do the wicked prosper, growing old and powerful? They're safe. There's no punishment. They say to God, go away, God. We don't want any part of you and your ways. Why should we obey him? Asaph. Psalm 73, they're prospering God despite their wickedness. They scoff and speak only evil. And in their pride, they just, they just seek to crush others. They say, what does God know, they ask. So you can tell their own struggles, and these are men and women of God. So you're in good company. 
But look at the end. Look at the end. Let me see what time it is. 11.08. We've got time. Let's turn to Psalm 73. And just as Job, at the end of the book of Job, where God comes and reveals himself, and Job all of a sudden understands God in a new light and understands his decisions and his judgments, so Asaph himself, as he complains to God, in fact, he, he says uh, in the start of Psalm 73, uh, if you want to turn to it, let me get my glasses so that I can see as well. He says, what is me, as for me, my, my, my feet had, had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on with this litany throughout the psalm, and he's, you know, they just have more than they want. Nothing happens to them. They prosper. They do well. You know, how does God know, they say? Um, you know, he's just obviously in agony. In fact, in verse 13, um, he says about himself, he says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. Wow. Hard, isn't it? What good is it to serve God, is what he's saying. What, what good is it to follow God when I seem to have troubles? When I see people that don't know God and don't care, doing all right for themselves. What's the use? Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever felt that way? Am I, am I, you know, does Asaph ring true to your own heart on this? And then he even says in verse 15, if I would speak publicly about this, I would be untrue to the generation of your children. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. He had an encounter with, with God. God came to him just like Job. And he goes, oh, now I see. I see what really the, the long-term view is here for eternity. I see what's going to happen. I see this, this short-term seemingly, we see it as long, but God sees it as very short, and then boom, there's justice. There's judgment. Anybody needed an encounter with the living God to make that real for him. And so what I would encourage you as a, as a believer, if you're going through suffering, you're going through pain, you're wondering, man, when, when did the breaks start happening? When does it start getting good in God? Let the Lord come and just meet you. Seek him. Go to his sanctuary. Go to that place in him. And let the Lord give you that long eternity view again and just refresh and renew your mind just as he did here with Job and Asaph. Another aspect that sometimes is difficult and we see God withdrawing and removing restraint is allowing persecution and the death of believers. That's a tough one. We've seen just in this chapter James being you know, cut down by the sword. And over the course of the, the history of the church, over the centuries, martyrs killed for his name's sake. Terrible stories. If you would want to read and just encourage yourself how good we really have it, I'd encourage you to read Fox's Book of Martyrs or other publications that talk about the history of the church being persecuted. In today's world, easily over half, maybe even 65% 
of believers on this planet are constantly being persecuted for their faith in Jesus and their love of God. But when God allows, as, did he, as he did with his son, suffering and persecution which tests us, it acts as a judgment, testing us, but also as, acting as a judgment against those who hate him. Think about the fire of persecution. Think about when, if you've got a raging fire, a big hot oven, and you throw a bale of hay into it, and some crude refined gold. And it's heated up hot. How much hay bale do you have left? But man, when the impurities are moved away from that gold and you get this refined gold that's just pure and usable, makes incredible jewelry, has great value, that's the process when God allows, withdraws, and allows persecution. It purifies. It really shows what's really real and what's fake. And that's almost a, that's really a judgment for us. That's a good thing. Now I know I'm not, I'm not a I'm not a sadistic monster and I'm not a masochist either. I don't pray, oh God, let persecution come. But in the scriptures, it says it purifies. It's a good thing when that happens. Understanding and trusting that his judgments and decisions are true and altogether righteous and experiencing his presence allows us to see the spreading of the good news of Jesus' sacrifice in this next passage where Peter talks about this in his, his epistle, his letter to a group of believers and this is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 and verse 17. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And what that literally means is when he comes and his glory is there, you're going to be part of that glory because you've faced the test and you've passed it and you partook of the sufferings of Christ. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, heavy passage. God's, when he, he's, he's, making, he's making a decision. He's, he's scrutinizing us through persecution. He's investigating. It's not that he doesn't know, but he's letting us know that he knows. Does that make sense? So in this passage, that's what Peter's saying. Now, this has been a hard road to hoe, isn't it? And there's a lot more we could spend on this. And I and encourage you to, to research this. Do a topical study on judgment throughout the scripture, because we do need to grow up in this. When we think about the love of God and the love of the Father, this seems incongruous to us that this would be so. And yet it is part of the love of God, and it's very powerful. And so we, we, we see this, 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 this persecution happening to, to James and Peter in the church, and we see Herod 
happening. And then we see this terrible thing happening to Herod. Which brings us to the last passage, which will be uplifting, I promise you. But the word of God, Luke writes, continued to grow and multiply. Luke contrasts here the judgment of God, the passing of sentence of death on Herod, and contrasts it with this decision for life that God gives to those who receive his living word, his son. God's anger and judgment against our wicked pride and rebellion and hatreds was poured out on his own son when he was nailed to the cross of punishment. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, and the Father turned his face away from his own son so that we might receive God's favorable judgment for ourselves. We see by this passage that Luke writes that the, his voice is like a living seed. I like the literal translation of this because it, it seems like, what does it mean the word of God continued to grow and multiply? That, ah, give me a better translation. What does that mean? It really simply means that God's voice is a living, powerful, active seed that literally implants itself into us. And by that life, it grows in us. His nature literally changes us from the inside out because we harbor the very life, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, who's called the Word of God. And His nature changes us, and as other people hear and see through us that living Word and they receive it, the Word multiplies in their life as well. And that's what Luke is talking about here. What a wonderful, powerful thing. So, I'm going to have the band come up. Just as Job was struggling with to understand God's justice and judgment, we looked at that a little bit, he still trusted enough to say in the book, he says to God, I have kept your way and I have not turned aside. I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. I pray, I pray for myself, I pray for us, that we would be refined and grow up to have that same heart that in the struggles and the growth pains that we have, like this was a tough passage this morning, right? But that we grow up in our understanding and knowledge of his ways and, and mesh it to understand his love and his power and his decisions in a, in a much more mature way that as we struggle with this and we see those things when God restrains and holds back and backs off, that we are able to, in the struggles, to still trust and say, as Job, I've kept your way. I haven't turned aside. I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my own necessary food. Yeah? So God grant that to us. God grant us that heart and a mind for that. And so as we worship... If there's something that the Lord has prompted your heart about this morning, you know, I'd like you to be able to uh, take some time right now to, you know, do business with the Lord on this. We're going to have some people praying off to the side. 
to, if you have any needs, any physical needs, if you're sick, you've been dealing with something, you know, this is a time to not worry about, you know, people seeing you going over to pray. You know, we, we're, we're to minister to each other and share with each other. So this morning, I'm going to have uh, maybe uh, Ernesto and Heidi and uh, trying to see who else is out there. A couple other people that can just go over and pray. Maybe Nate, you want to go over there and maybe, you know, be available for prayer. And if there's anything you have need for, that's why we, we have this every, every Sunday, so that you can just have somebody just put their hand, just love you, and just pray for you. So please avail yourself of that. Uh, we also are taking part of the body, the body and the blood of Jesus in, in a communion. We have communion against the walls. We have gluten-free in the back. We have some communion implements up front and on the side over there. Man, partake of the, of the love of God that he's given out to you and rejoice in the fact that you are no longer condemned. Like Paul says, uh, whoever are in Jesus, there's no longer any condemnation. That's a faithful saying. So take advantage of the body and the blood of the Lord by taking communion. If you'd like to come up here for prayer on the front, please take advantage of that. And uh, let's worship. Okay?